0: Welcome to the election ride home for Tuesday, September third, twenty nineteen. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, the DNC scraps Iowa's virtual caucus plan. Manchin says he will stay on as a senator in West Virginia. Biden says details are irrelevant to his war story. And how to watch the CNN Climate Forum tomorrow? Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, plans for the virtual caucuses in Iowa this year have been scrapped by the DNC. Now, you may ask, what virtual caucuses are we talking about? Let me explain in just a moment. And by the way, thanks to listener and real-life friend Chad Bell from Chicago for bringing this up in the first place. This was originally a listener question, and it got a little bit more complex when the DNC weighed in. Okay, so first up, we briefly have to get into what an American caucus traditionally looks like, at least for Democrats. Let's take Iowa as the classic example. Within each county, there are precincts. Each precinct holds an in-person event called a caucus. At that caucus, which is often held in a large public space, think like a gymnasium or a barn or even somebody's home if it's a small enough precinct, registered Democrats physically gather in groups within the room based on which candidate they support. They like hold up a sign with the name of the candidate and they all gather around that little group. Okay, so now you have these groups clustered around the room based on their support for a given candidate. There's typically a half-hour discussion trying to convince them to move, you know, kind of horse trading or saying my candidate's better for these reasons. Then there's a count, and any group in the room that falls below 15% of the total in that room, meaning let's say you have 5% of people supporting so-and-so, that candidate is now out of the race within that room. And all the people who supported that candidate, candidate so-and-so, or who were undecided to begin with, now have to join some other group. They have to support somebody else or support nobody by abstaining. This is part of why pollsters are so interested in asking, hey, what would your second choice be for a candidate? All right, so after that first round, then there is another big old discussion to persuade people to switch candidates or assign their votes to their second choice and so on. When everybody is solid on their choice, then the caucus for that precinct is complete. The votes and the percentages are tallied, and we're done. Those numbers are then rolled up to the county and state levels, and delegates are apportioned at the state level to the Democratic Convention in proportion to how the caucuses turned out. Okay, so what are some of the problems with caucuses in general? Well, for one thing, you have to be pretty politically engaged to show up on a Tuesday night and spend potentially hours wandering around a basketball court and giving speeches about why somebody should support your favorite candidate. For another, there are serious issues for people with disabilities. A lot of these locations are not accessible. And sometimes the discussion itself is not accessible. For instance, let's say you are deaf and you're a voter and you want to be in the caucus. Well, it is rather hard to participate in that big discussion in that giant room full of people. Plus, by the way... A lot of people work at night. So overall, this system does not get much participation. And that's a problem because with Iowa as a super early voting state, it gets a disproportionate amount of Canada attention and then a low turnout. So you have a system that is both complex and not very inclusive or even representative. Alright, so the DNC reached out to Iowa and Nevada, who are both caucus states, for this cycle and said, you gotta figure out a way to allow absentee voting in your caucuses or switch to a primary instead. So those states kind of grumbled, but they said, okay, fine. In the case of Iowa, they proposed a phone-based system where people could dial in on six different specific occasions, enter a PIN and their birth date, and then over the phone rank up to five candidates in order of their preference. Iowa put this together as a plan and formally submitted it to the DNC for approval many, many months ago. And, by the way, the way this virtual caucus thing would have worked mathematically was, in a word, complex. It's not like those phone people would have had physical stand-ins in their precinct who would move around the room based on the phone voting. Not at all. Reading from a Vox story by Ellen Nielsen, quote, Here's how it was supposed to work. All of Iowa's four congressional districts would have been allocated up to an additional 10% of the overall state delegate equivalents, or the delegate totals from each county. In other words, if one congressional district had 400 people going to their delegate convention, they would get an extra 40 delegates that could be awarded based on the results from the virtual caucus. End quote. Okay, so, like, wait, what? This was already complicated enough with a zillion precincts and all that stuff, and now we're talking about adding more math on top of that? Well, okay. So, last week, the DNC told Iowa, Nope on that phone-in plan. They were concerned that one of the vendors selected by Iowa might be vulnerable to hacking. Now, reading here from an Iowa Public Radio story by Katarina Sostarich, Quote, Iowa Democratic Party chair Troy Price said there was a misconception that hackers accessed the virtual caucus system. What they discovered was a potential vulnerability with one of our four potential vendors, Price said. And so it was not a hack of anything that had been built because we have not built anything yet. End quote. Yeah. So the chain of events here is the DNC says figure out how to get this done. Iowa does. They submit the plan. Then, many months later, the DNC has its big meeting, and the DNC Committee, the Rules and Bylaws Committee, apparently found that DNC security staff could hack into a conference call between the DNC Committee and the Iowa and Nevada Democratic Parties. The DNC Committee then concluded that no phone-based voting system existed that met its security standards, so the whole thing was not approved. Plus, another concern was that in the math I talked about earlier, there was a 10% cap overall on how much the virtual caucus counted toward the overall state delegate count. That's probably not high enough given how many people might opt to do the virtual thing rather than show up in person, meaning it's still not a proportional voting system, so that still doesn't seem fair. The problem right now is that the DNC is still requiring absentee voting in Iowa and Nevada, and there's about five months until caucus day in Iowa. So Iowa is faced with an enormous problem right now, which is they somehow have to design a new system right now, get it approved right now, And if they don't, they may have to switch somehow at the last minute to a primary system, like with a regular ballot, which would mean losing their first-in-the-nation caucus because New Hampshire, because of its state law, will leapfrog any primary that tries to go before it. So this is a classic big ol' mess, and I will keep you updated as we figure out how this will play out. Okay, this next item is a quick one. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, announced that he will not run for governor of his state and instead will remain in his safe Senate seat. Now, you may recall Manchin was governor of West Virginia from 2005 to 2010 when he won a special election to fill Senator Robert Byrd's seat after Byrd's death. Now, quick note and full disclosure, I have a ton of family and history in West Virginia, including family members who have worked on behalf of Manchin's campaigns and stuff like that. So to be clear, I have zero personal involvement with any of that, but I am well aware of Senator Manchin and the complex relationship he has with his home state and the National Party as well. Manchin is either a centrist or even a right-leaning Democrat, depending on how you look at it. Republicans often feel he's too liberal, and liberals often feel he's too conservative. This is the kind of double bind you find yourself in when you're working as a Democrat in a red state that used to be blue. So the key news here is that his Senate seat will not be up for the 2020 election. He has it through 2024, and all bets are off when that cycle rolls around. This was basically what Democrats were hoping for, and it does keep a Senate seat in a red state firmly off the table for a possible Republican pickup in the upcoming election. Ah. <sighs> Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Next up an update on Joe Biden and that war story. So a quick summary of the coverage from Thursday here. Basically, the Washington Post dug into a story that Biden has been telling on the campaign trail for more than a decade and concluded that it was actually kind of a mashup of three different stories and didn't really resemble the actual truth of what Biden himself did in the story he was telling. But Biden didn't say that to voters and instead presented it as a specific thing that happened to him. Okay, so National Public Radio interviewed Biden over the weekend for the NPR Politics podcast, which, by the way, I highly recommend, I listen to every episode, and Ozma Khalid was one of the reporters who interviewed Biden, and she asked him indirectly about the story, putting it in the context of the many verbal gaffes that Biden has made. She said, quote, I was out with you last week in South Carolina speaking to a number of voters at your rallies, and I will say, most of your supporters that I talk to, they don't seem to mind. They say that it's just, you know, it happens to all of us. We all put our foot in our mouth. Do you not feel that the details, not just the intentions, matter when you're making decisions as president? End quote. So Biden responded, and this is long and verbatim. Quote, well, there are two fundamentally different things you're asking me. When I stand, and you guys love to conflate these things, number one is, I stood up and talked about pinning a medal on a young man who did not want the medal and was a brave, brave young man. I also talked about, up in the upper Conar Valley, of another young man who engaged in a very brave act. Turns out, I believe it was General Rodriguez, was up in that, I believe they call it a forward operating base with only six or eight people up there, and he pinned the bronze star on a young man up there. It wasn't the young man who got the Medal of Honor from the President who, in fact, was in a different place. That was in Afghanistan, but not where I was. And so the fact that the whole purpose of what I was saying did not in any way affect my point. They are incredibly brave, decent, honorable men and women in the military, who, in fact, are, like any other generation, only even have done more They've saddled up, they've gone out, they've wiped the blood off these Humvees, they've got back out, they get out again, they just go out again and again and again. I was making a point about a generation. That has nothing to do with judgment of whether or not you send troops to war, the judgment of whether you bring someone home, the judgment of whether you decide on a healthcare policy. You understand, end quote. And Khalid interrupted here, saying, quote, not judgment, no, no, not judgment but details, because that's something I've heard from some voters, maybe not at your events, but details, end quote. Biden responded, quote, no, but the details are irrelevant in terms of decision-making. If, in fact, I forget that it was Rodriguez, of all the times I've been in and out of Afghanistan and Iraq and Bosnia and Kosovo, as much as anybody, except maybe my deceased friend John McCain and maybe Lindsey Graham. And so the fact that I would forget that it was Rodriguez who was pinning, I believe this is the case, pinning a bronze star on a young man, was, it's irrelevant to the point. It's like saying, I had this very bright young reporter, and I think her eyes were blue. What difference would it make about whether you were a bright reporter, your eyes are brown? It's irrelevant, and you know it. End quote. Yeah, so that argument is a very long way of saying a simple thing. Biden was trying to communicate that what he calls the 9-11 generation of soldiers are themselves honorable and decent people. That's point number one. Point number two, he's saying that within the scope of that first point, it doesn't matter that he got all the details wrong. The person who got the medal, the person who pinned the medal, which medal it was, where it happened, all that stuff he explicitly listed out. I just said that. And he said it does not matter. I think the overall point he's driving at is that he would make a good president and have good judgment related to foreign policy regardless, even though he got all those details wrong. So I encourage you to listen to the whole interview, which is more than 20 minutes long. Check out the NPR Politics link in the show notes and listen to it and subscribe to it. Seriously, it is good stuff and it gives you a good sense of where Biden stands on a ton of issues. It is not all about this war story, though, of course, that is the thing that made headlines. (laughs) And last of today, Wednesday evening, that is tomorrow, people, CNN will hold its climate town hall featuring 10 candidates. Now, those 10 happen to be the same 10 who will appear in the DNC debate next week. Okay, so let's talk details. The candidates will appear back to back in order to avoid any possible debate per those DNC rules, and the candidates will take questions from a mix of people in the audience and CNN anchors. So here is the order in which the candidates will appear Castro, Yang, Harris, Klobuchar, Biden, Sanders, Warren, Buttigieg, O'Rourke, and Booker. There's a link in the show notes to a CNN article that lays out the specific time each candidate is scheduled to start and finish, in case you are more interested in one than another. Each of them will be paired up for a brief interview segment with a CNN anchor, and then come the questions. Each candidate gets 40 minutes in total, presumably minus commercials, which means this event starts at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and runs through, wait for it, midnight. Because, you know, 400 minutes is just shy of 7 hours of television. This might be a good event to record for later watching, but hey, if you want to watch live, go for it. Okay, so how can you watch this live? Well, as far as I can tell from this CNN reporting, you need either a cable subscription to CNN, or, oddly enough, there are multiple radio options. Reading from a CNN article by Mark Preston, quote, The town halls will air exclusively on CNN, CNN International, CNN en Español, CNN.com's homepage, across mobile devices like CNN's apps for iOS and Android, via CNN Go apps for Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, Chromecast, and Android TV, Sirius XM channels 116, 454, 795, and the Westwood One radio network, end quote. It's unclear from that coverage whether the broadcast will be available without a login, but I kind of assume they would be trumpeting that fact if that were the case. I will update you tomorrow, moments before the event, if I learn that indeed the channel will suddenly go free at that moment. But for now, I would assume that you really do need a CNN subscription or a login or whatever. So that's the story. Settle in for seven hours of climate change town hall on Wednesday night, or for my summary the next day. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Okay, true story time. This is definitely whining on the yacht, as they say. But this morning, I woke up, I fired up my fancy pants iMac computer, and I found that there was a teeny tiny little spider living inside the screen. Like, under the glass, but on top of the pixels. And it was walking around on top of my Microsoft Word document that I'm reading right now. I tried tapping the screen, I tried blowing air like into the edges, I tried all kinds of stuff, but the spider didn't respond to any of that. Eventually, I noticed that it didn't seem to like when a white area was behind it. I guess that was too much glare or heat or something. So I turned the monitor up to full brightness and just put white everywhere and it wandered off into the bezel. That's like the dark space around the edge. So I will keep you posted because apparently this is a thing that happens to people with this kind of computer. And if that spider dies in the middle of my screen, I got to take it to Apple and pay them for a new screen. So, all right, I got a case of the Mondays on Tuesday. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.